Welcome to the Botstaber Austrian American Podcast. One foot, one foot off the cliff, the other in solid rock, her heart in her mouth. Night breaks into dawn. A fool sees stars in the day, red twinkling in the sun. Mom, Earth, stop quaking. The fools are encircling you with love returning. Is this really dark? No moon in the Milky Way. In search for her word, she travels book in hand. The pages are blank. The dance of the flame, the picture in the embers, tells all ever known. Down your wind, wild wind. Down your beat, wild wind, rocking to your tune all night, full smiles and sleep. Our guest today is Thomas Antonich, a historian of literature who is also a filmmaker, writer, poet, musician, multimedia artist, and a two-time bias grantee. This year, he completed the film, One More Step West, is the Sea, and a co-edited collection titled Ruth Weiss, Beat Poetry, Jazz, and Art. Thomas, it is such a pleasure to finally talk with you today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure to be here. You selected a recording to play at the beginning of this podcast. Will you tell us about it? This was a performance of Ruth Weiss in, from 2017 in Oakland uh, from an event that was called uh, Jazz and Haiku, where she performed haiku poems of her accompanied by her uh, jazz trio. And she did that the first time uh, because uh, she never performed haiku poems uh, before that with jazz combo. And I filmed this uh, event and recorded it also and uh, it is part of my documentary film uh, One More Step West is the Sea about a roof waste. Your first bias grant supported what I believe is your overall focus or at least it has been in terms of beat literature and that has to do with the transnational connections between the beats and Austrian literature and culture. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I would love to know some more about this. Well, the whole thing started when I was uh, writing a biography about the Austrian playwright Wolfgang Bauer, about whom I also uh, wrote my dissertation in uh, 2011. And at some point, I've just figured out that uh, in the 1960s, he was very influenced by the Beat Generation. And I got interested into that because I was uh, reading Beat Generation myself when I was a teenager. So I I got interested into uh, if if there were more than just Bauer uh, of the Austrian writers, playwrights, poets who were influenced by the Beat Generation, like from the 1960s onwards to the present. And so I started to do uh, research on that subject, and it became clear very fast that. Um, there were a couple of, of important Austrian writers, such as Nobel Prize winners 
Elfriede Jelinek and Peter Handke also, who were working with beat generation or beat literature styles and uh, they're influenced by that. There were also personal contacts like uh, Allen Ginsberg and Ernst Jandl already uh, reading together in London in 1965. So it became clear that um, a research trip to the US would be possible to dig uh, deeper into these fields and do research in, in archives such as uh, Stanford, uh, where the Allen Ginsberg papers are, and the uh, Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley where there's a lot of poets' uh, posthumous papers, also Ruth Weiss. And yeah, so I applied for Potsdamer grant, which I luckily got and received, and that made it possible for me to travel to California and uh, do this kind of research. And out of this developed a project that got bigger and bigger, and I would say it's still ongoing. I mean, it is <laughs> ongoing. <laughs> So is it through this work that you came to know Ruth Weiss? Yes, uh, pretty soon, because, I mean, if you just Google Beat Generation Austria and uh, United States, then it, the name Ruth Weiss pops up pretty soon. Hmm. So I have to admit that I really didn't know her before that. And this is also because of uh, women beat poets uh, were uh, for a long time not really acknowledged. And uh, that started actually only uh, in the late 90s when Brenda Knight published a book called Women of the Beat Generation. But yeah, um, I, I got interested in, in uh, Ruth Weiss's uh, works and biography immediately because she was so obscure to me. Mm. And coincidentally, it was it, it it happened that I think it was like one or two months after uh, I found her like online uh, by doing online research that she visited Austria and participated at the so-called Sprachsalz Festival, a poetry festival in Tyrol. So I got in touch with the organizer and he told me that she's going to Vienna after this festival and. A visitor, a publisher, Christa Stippinger, and she was it who um, arranged a meeting with Ruth for me and <laughs> uh, to do an interview, a first interview. And yeah, that was the beginning of a, a long uh, dedication to her works and life and also a friendship, I would say. Wow. So uh, how did that first interview go? Yeah, it was pretty uh, nice and it was like a very long interview, like two hours uh, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, uh, the main subject was actually my research theme for which I got also the bias grant, the first one, that was like the Austrian connections to the US beats. So I was interested in what were her connections, like vice versa to Vienna and her Austrian background. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about that. And since uh, not a lot of people knew that in America at this point, she was very happy to talk about that in an interview with me. So she was obscure and... You didn't know that much about her, but you have devoted quite a lot of your time and energy over years to her work. Why? What has drawn you so much to her work? Well, first I have to say she she's obscure in in oh, yeah still is in in Europe, mm -hmm. not so much in, uh, at the U.S. West Coast where she has always been some kind of uh, legendary poet, performer, jazz and poetry performer, but still not not as 
big as her male colleagues in that from that era and from that beat movement like Ginsburg and also uh, Bob Kaufman or Jack Kerrick or Lawrence Filangetti. And yeah, the reason is actually because I was first, I was very focused on, on Austrian writers who were influenced by the beat generation. And so suddenly this, this poet pops up who is actually Austrian-American. So it's the perfect like link between these two, mm. yeah, this, this two, like the Austrian literature and the, and the beat generation, because she is uh, not only Austrian-American, she's also a beat poet. And second, I would say like everything that is quite obscure to me is something that attracts me and it's like, mm -hmm. like a magnet. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really not, not interested a lot in writing about or doing research about well-known poets or artists and dig into fields where I discover people who are not very well-known and I try to find out why this is not the thing it is mostly this is not because of the quality of their uh, works or their writings but because of lack of maybe a social network within the literary scene or not being able to find the right publisher for a long time or uh, after uh, yeah forever <laughs> so yeah this is what interests me like the social point also of, of literature or arts so Ruth Weiss was born in Germany to Austrian parents and lived in Austria when she was very young. Yeah. But she considered herself Austrian. Yes. What, what can you tell me about her early experiences? Well, she didn't remember a lot about Berlin. So she moved uh, mm. with her parents to Vienna when she was five. and That's quite young. Yes. And she was living in the city from five to ten. And uh, from this period, she has a very she had a very vivid uh, memory, like a lot of very beautiful memories of her childhood, like being able to live in the center of the city, but move very, very, very freely with her friends, her schoolmates, like her parents mm -hmm. never. I mean, they were protecting her, but but just let her play in the streets and she was always kind of a explorer so uh, there was a, a cousin uh, living like across this the city and uh, at, at one day she just decided she wants to visit this cousin who was uh, 16 years old at that time and so she just <laughs> sneaked out and went across the city alone at the age of seven or eight and yeah to do that and also spend time uh, with her father in the uh, Wienerwald, the Vienna woods. But of course, also because it's like the end of the 30s and national socialism is on the rise, there were a few situations that uh, were kind of traumatizing her. For example, when she was walking with her mother on the streets and there was she was not very exact about this image because she was very young and it was a long time after that she told that, but there was a, a Torah that her mother discovered on the streets and she wanted to pick that up. And at that moment, a policeman came around the corner and saw her and, and knew her obviously and said like, Frau Weiss, please don't do that because, uh, you know, we don't want to put you to jail. Yeah. Mm, wow. Well, so how did they leave? 
Well, her father was a journalist, so uh, he saw things coming pr pretty early. Hmm. It was uh, also some luck. And in Vienna, they lived in the uh, apartment of her father's mother, her grandmother, who was running a, a rooming house for international students. So they had a lot of uh, international collections because of that. And so they had uh, students living there in this very big apartment, like they had uh, rented out eight rooms to students from like all over Europe, from China, Japan, but also from uh, the United States. And one of them became friends with Ruth's father. And so when her father saw that the national socialism is on the rise and it's uh, very likely that Hitler will maybe annex Austria very soon. He got in touch with that friend who was back in the States at that point already. And back then you needed someone like a sponsor to get a visa. So he wrote this uh, mm -hmm. friend and he he was willing to be the sponsor. And so they applied for a visa and were waiting for that. But uh, it took a very long time and it didn't arrive. So in March 1938, when Hitler annexed Austria, they tried, they, they waited still a couple of weeks or months and then decided to try to escape into Switzerland because the visa was still not here. So they traveled mm -hmm. by train across uh, Austria to the Swiss border. But at that point, the Swiss didn't let any uh, refugees cross anymore. So uh, they were facing Swiss sharpshooters shooting over their heads. And oh, no. um, Ruth was 10 years at that time. So that was actually a very traumatizing <laughs> experience. Oh, I can imagine. So, yeah, they went back, back to Innsbruck and didn't know what to do now. <sighs> and arriving by train in Innsbruck in the middle of the night where a woman saw them and picked them up and let them stay in their apartment, where there was also a man living there. And it turned out that they only had uh, one bed in this apartment. So uh, the woman and the man stayed up all night to let that uh, poor family sleep there. And in the morning, uh, the woman gave them uh, tickets back to Vienna, train tickets, and told them, like, go to the train station and don't look at anyone because it was obvious they were not uh, Aryan. And on the train station, and this is something that Ruth remembers quite uh, vivid, uh, she saw uh, somebody coming to the platform in a Nazi uniform. And she looked up to that man and then he saw that it was the man where they stayed overnight. So this was actually a Nazi soldier, and but, but helped them. Oh my gosh, what mm -hmm. a story. Oh. So then they, they went back to Vienna and luckily it was December 1938 and when they came back the visa was waiting for them from New York. So at one of the last possible moments they uh, took a train again and went all across Nazi Germany through to Holland where they uh, boarded a ship to New York. So this is how they escaped and arrived in the States. Wow. So yeah, that's quite a story, and that's just, this is just the beginning because she's only ten years old at that time. <laughs> well, I can, I can well imagine that so many of her experiences would would really shape her outlook, even uh, the, the traumatic ones, and even the idea of her uh, growing up in these years uh, where she's exposed to so many people from so many different yes. cultures. Yeah. I, I, I imagine that really helped her to have such an open um, attitude towards so much. 
Oh yeah, I would say so. Yes, uh, she was yeah uh, very exceptional uh, when she was a young woman. For example, hitchhiking across the states uh, solo for two or three years, which was something like nobody did actually back then. So she was very much of an explorer <laughs> at, at a time when uh, not even Jack Herrick's on the road was out yet. So there was not a, a big hype about like hitchhiking through the country and especially not like a solo female traveler. So for example, this is one of mm-hmm. the examples she did. So when did this uh, free spirit start to write poetry? It was always important for her to to give this statement that actually she started to write poetry at the time she started to think or could think so and started to write mm. because she could read and write at the age of five and that's also when she wrote her first poem and decided that she wants to be a poet and yeah never stopped and never did any compromises and never wanted to do something else. Do you know then? So she started writing poetry uh, in German, I would think. And then what was it like to come to the United States? Did she shift to writing in English? What Was her poetry largely in English? I, I thought it was, but yeah. I'm not sure. She shifted actually immediately when she started to learn English. So I mean, there is only one poem from that time uh, preserved, really her first one because she remembered that and wrote it down at some point later and it's also uh, published in a book but nothing actually of these early works survived until she was like 18 or 19 when she really started keeping her her so she also said uh, she told me she she wrote a novel uh, in English when she was 12 years old but well nothing of this is uh, survived yeah quite ambitious Mm -hmm. so at 18 she's starting to keep what she's writing um is she publishing at that point is she is she using music at that point what is her poetry like it is very abstract so something like uh, autobiographical uh narrational poems that she did later is not at all her thing between 20 and 30 so she's very influenced by by surrealists um by for example, Gertrude Stein. And she wasn't published for a long time, except for uh, a few poems in a, in a magazine in New Orleans where she lived in 1950, because she didn't feel that her writing was mature enough yet. So uh, the first book came out when she was actually like 30 years old. But uh, she started to, to uh, perform with uh, jazz musicians already uh, in 1949 when she was living in Chicago. So that's when she was 21, which happened actually as a accidental because she was asked by some fellow poets to, to read her poetry on stage. And there was a jazz combo tuning the instruments and warming up in the background. And they, uh, instead of listening to her poem, they just started to play along with her. So this was actually the the birth of uh, Ruth Weiss's jazz and poetry, which she more or less innovated as a before more famous beat poets such as Ferlinghetti or Jack Kerouac saw her and took it over and were a long time thought as the uh, innovators of this genre, which in fact was Ruth. They got the credit for it. Yeah, because uh, they they recorded LPs and Ruth didn't. So this was actually the reason why they became famous with it. So this goes back to your interest, right? And the the less well-known sort of 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned these other um, people from the beat generation. So how did she come in contact with them? And what was her relationship like with them? Um, well, in 1952, she hitchhiked from Chicago to San Francisco and decided to stay there because she heard a lot of North Beach, the Bohemian Quarter of San Francisco, where she, she found immediately like her peer group, so to say. Mm. So the first place she moved in was in North Beach, a house at, at the address 1010 Montgomery. And it maybe took a couple of days and she heard writing, someone writing on a typewriter in the same building. And she just went over there and knocked and uh, says, hi, I just wanted to say hello to my new neighbors. And it turned out it is Philip Whalen, uh, which was uh, also one of the better known beat poets who read with uh, Allen Ginsberg and Michael McClure and others at that uh, famous Six Gallery reading where Allen Ginsberg uh, read Howl for the first time. Mm. So, and yeah, Philip Whalen and soon after she met Philip Lamantia. A lot of uh, poets and artists who are not known anymore because there were a lot who were just not interested in becoming well-known and just did their bohemian thing in, in uh, North Beach. And to, it, it was in uh, October 1955 when she met Jack Kerrick because at that point she was uh, living at the Hotel Rantley, which was kind of a place where you could get cheap rooms, which is why, uh, why it attracted uh, lots of artists, but uh, also like... Mm-hmm. Uh, Elderly people were living in that house, so it was a kind of a colorful mixture. And Carrick had a friend also living in the Hotel Wentley, and this is how uh, he and Ruth Weiss met. And they they got along pretty like immediately, and uh, but never had any uh, sexual relationship, which is the reason actually why they got along so well. <laughs> That's what Ruth says also <laughs> always because he didn't treat his ladies well. But yeah, they had a lot of things in common. They had like Jack, Jack Carrick was growing up speaking French. Ruth was growing up speaking German. So English was both not their uh, native language. They were like both hitchhiking through the States. And so they started uh, writing haiku together mm-hmm. in her hotel room, uh, like nights on end over a bottle of wine until in the morning, Jack Carrick's best buddy, Neil Cassidy, showed up and... Uh, drove with them on one of the hills in San Francisco where they uh, watched some um, sunrise and things like that. But this this uh, relationship was um, intense, but pretty short, as she told me. Oh, what a time yeah. in uh, history. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, pretty amazing. Was Ruth also friends with female poets? Yeah, well... She was she was uh, um, friends with a lot of female poets, but uh, she got acquainted with what we know now as uh, women beat poets much later. Mm-hmm. So there are there are poets like Laura Ulevitz who are hardly known outside of the Bay Area, with whom she was very close, or um, poets from an older generation uh, like Madeline Gleason, who cannot really be considered as a beat poets. I mean, uh, Brenda Knight in her book, Women of the Beat Generation, describes her as a precursor. So yeah, um, what was, uh, sorry, what was the question? (laughs) 
Um, if she uh, was friends with a female beat poet, if she yeah, so that that came uh, later, like especially when when uh, when Brenda Knight put this uh, book out in, in 1996, in which a couple of them are portrayed. Um, and there were events in the course of this book publication where they met, and and only it was only like short before um, she got also a bit more acknowledged, and she 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 met people like Jack Kerouac's daughter Jan Kerouac. So yeah, that that happened actually in the nineties. How did she feel about the recognition and success of so many of the male B poets, especially as she was friends with? A number of them. Well, there are. I think there are two aspects. The one is, of course, uh, having not that success was quite frustrating for her. Mm. For example, you know that uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti published Howl in 1956, and at his uh, publishing company City Lights, which was founded in 1953, so that was exactly at the time when uh, Ruth also arrived in the town. And in 1958, uh, she finished her first collection of poetry that she actually wanted to have published as a book. And City Lights rejected proposal. And Ferlinghetti's argument or reasoning was, and this is really something incredible to hear from a beat poet who is kind of part of a movement who is like for sexual liberation and all that stuff. But his reason was that... They, at that point, they they simply didn't publish women, oh. so that's why they rejected uh, her. So he admired it, but he wouldn't publish. Yes, it. yes, and he was not the only one. <laughs> there were other publishing, uh, like small presses, who were well known for publishing that sort of poetry, who rejected her because she was a woman. So she had to uh, publish her first three books uh, in in. Yeah, by herself in the private press that she uh, founded together with her then-husband. In 1970, Ruth published a poem, Single Outs, which is also the title of the book, which contains a story of her escape from Austria. She was 50 years old by the time it was published. Why was that? Um, a lot of it has to do because she was so traumatized that she was hiding a lot. So this is actually what I wanted to uh, also say to uh, earlier question about like being frustrated at some point or on one on the one hand uh, about not getting that much attention and not being published. On the other hand, she was actually yeah hiding a lot because of that escape trauma where she also had to hide her identity and hide from soldiers. So for a long time, she didn't even have her uh, phone number listed in a phone book and things like that. And so she also preferred to not reveal that much of her origins, her past, her biography. And so it, it, yeah, it took a really long time until she finally decided to come out with that. And then what happened? Did she start to write about it more in her 50s? No, not really, no. Uh, it actually took took until um, 
she she was portrayed in that book women of the beat generation and before that she also wasn't really uh, put in in the context of the beat generation she never considered herself as a beat poet for example before the publication of this book but suddenly that was there, there was this interest in her persona in her not only in her uh, poems but also in her biography and this is why she sta- started to write more and more about it and also in 1993 so three three years before this book got published she was interviewed by the Holocaust Memorial uh, Oral History mm-hmm. Project yeah. in San Francisco. I saw that, yeah. That is a five and a half hour uh, interview where she actually, for the first time, tells anyone in length about her whole childhood and escape experience and things like that. So that triggered a lot. And after that, she actually started to, to write more about that. Is there anything that you would like to share with us that shows, that demonstrates her kind of experiences with a Nazi-occupied Austria? Well, maybe uh, maybe now would be a good uh, point or in time to maybe play an audio clip. So I prepared that uh, excerpt of her long poem, Single Out, which she first read in 1974 in a a radio station in uh, Berkeley, and this is—I consider this as her uh, most important um, poem about that special topic. So the the whole poem has four parts, and it would take about eighteen minutes uh, the whole thing. But I think the second part is like two and a half minutes, and is a very good example about that. Part two, incident. October 1938, we had to flee Vienna. My grandmother's Hungarian boarding house was wanted by Nazi official. Hungary was still out of Nazi clutch and my grandmother Hungarian. We were Austrian citizens. My father, his mother's only son. We left quickly in the night for the Swiss border. The border had closed one night before our arrival. Rain, dizzy Alp trails. We climbed to slide muddy back to the border village, another try. Now a desperate 20, mostly young men, with hired guide across the flooded Rhine. One woman slips in the mud, shots singing above our heads, not really meant to hit us, Swiss sharpshooters. The warning real enough, go back, we can't take any more. We couldn't either. The three of us penniless in the Salzburg train station, obvious on Aryan. What now? Any moment the question, the only answer. A young woman brushed by, a whisper, the follow me, what could we lose? Wet night, narrow streets, we kept a block behind until she vanished into her doorway. A slit of light, we entered. Are you hungry, she said, I'll show you your bed. All night the Venetian blinds caught light, once there was a knock. The sun rained through the blinds when she called us for breakfast. A young man with unslept eyes was sipping coffee. Where are you headed? Vienna. The man nodded, kissed the woman, left. Her hands put money and tickets into ours. She directed us to the station, first checking the street. At the station, an official gleaming, a huge swastika neared us. What now? Then we saw his face. It was a young man who hadn't slept. It had only been one bed in the flat. 
In Vienna, our visa from New York awaited us. There was still time to leave. December 31st, 1938, midnight, the last possible moment. We boarded a train for Holland. In Switzerland, we would have spent the war in an internment camp. I am really struck that she started to open up later in life about her childhood. And it, and in a way, to explore it as if she hadn't before. What was it like for you as an Austrian who became, it sounds like her friend? Yep. So I, I wonder about this relationship between the two of you, where as she's become closer to her Austrian heritage, here she is also becoming closer to an Austrian in you. I, I just wonder how that played out in your relationship. Mm. I'm not, I'm not really sure if it uh, is uh, relevant that I I am Austrian um, for mm. her to like opening up that way and it was more a it was a, a str- the strong interest I, I showed in in her life and her works and mm-hmm. uh, also the fact that we we met in 2012 and 2013 in Vienna and then because of my bias grant I went to California and could also um, visit her and that was also something like fascinating for her that somebody comes that far to visit her <laughs> just to have an interview <laughs> with her and. Yeah, the the year after that, I was also again in in San Francisco. Coincidentally, when she had a performance in San Francisco, so I also went there, and that was quite an interesting jazz and poetry perform- performance at the Top of the Marks Hotel, the Intercontinental in San Francisco. At that time, she was, I think, she was eighty seven or eighty eight years old, and. Mm-hmm. Because she was invited to that fancy hotel, she uh, decided to have an after-show party in her hotel room, it's like like she was thirty <laughs> or twenty-five years old, and invited like twenty-five <laughs> people in that hotel room with like having beer and champagne and pizza, and it was a wild party there until the security threw everyone out at one in the morning <laughs> because it was so loud. So yeah, she was really a wild woman until her late days, but. Yeah, so we stayed in touch and every time I met her, we did another interview and then it just was more or less a logical step that um, I decided to to make a write a biography about her because nobody has done that before and told her about this idea and she embraced that. And yeah, next time I was in California, she showed me her whole archive and all that stuff and we had lengthy interviews and... This is actually also when this uh, next idea came up to not only write a biography, but also make a documentary film. And so she was involved and just happy to be part, to have you do this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, she su- supported everything I did and gave me a lot of material. And I went through... I spent days with her in her archive to go through uh, old archival stuff and where she explained every document, every item. Wow. And yeah, the archive is huge. So that took a really long time. And so we spent a lot of time together. And yeah, also that's the reason why we, I think, became friends in the end. I have to ask, why the title of the film, One More Step West is the Sea? This is the first poem in uh, the title of the first poem in her first book. 
and it's about arriving in San Francisco and which is the city where she decided to stay after that long travel, like being on the roads, starting from Berlin to Vienna to New York, Chicago, New Orleans, then hitchhiking across the country. And then finally finding this city uh, at the West Coast where she feels like home for the first time since she left Vienna. And also it doesn't go any further in a symbolic way, mm -hmm. you know, like arriving at the West Coast, one more step west is the sea, so you cannot go any further. And this was the idea also to adapt this title for the for the uh, film, because the original idea of the film was to tell the story of her life in 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 uh, in the how do you say uh, chronological. Okay. But. Uh, in the other way, like from oh. the present to the past. Mm -hmm. So it would start in San Francisco and end in Vienna. Mm -hmm. But during filming, it turned out that this is not really the best at the end to do it more spontaneously and follow her style because she also uh, worked a lot with me and had brought in ideas for the film. And so uh, the end product is something completely different than the original idea. But the title uh, stayed. Though California, the West Coast, was her home, she did seem to have a new relationship with Austria in later years. Why didn't she return to Vienna until the 1990s? Well, the reason for her to wait that long uh, has actually uh, economical reasons. Actually, a economical mm -hmm. reason. She simply could not afford to uh, travel across the Atlantic. I know that in the 70s, she applied for a grant uh, to come to Europe, but which was uh, rejected. So um, the dream of going back to Vienna just vanished with this rejection. And she forgot about that, actually, and thought she would never see Vienna again. And yeah, because as I told earlier, she was not acknowledged. She, yeah, she was actually quite poor. But that was totally okay for her because she was like embracing this bohemian way of life. So a hot dog for a whole day and uh, beer in the evening uh, as a whole meal for a day was um, quite normal for her. And also to her life partner, Paul Blake, with whom she was together for 41 years uh, and who was a painter. So they were just living like that for a very long time until she got uh, this acknowledged by the media. And through the book Women of the Beat Generation, she was then invited to a Beat Generation Festival in Prague in 1998, together with Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And that was the point, like after 40 years or 50 years, that when they finally became friends. <laughs> so she was in Prague and, of course, she knew that it's a four hours train ride to Vienna. And so... She decided that she has to go now and got in touch with the Vienna School for Poetry, the Schule für Dichtung, of which she heard of in, in somebody told her about that school in, in San Francisco. So she got in touch with the uh, director back then and the founder of the school, Christian Idehinze, and he invited her to come to the school and give a reading and invited her to come back after four months to give lectures and a class. And... Because of this, she could establish uh, some kind of a network also in Austria. Uh, and uh, she found a publisher in Vienna who published four of her books. And um, 
they organized a lot of performances here and also throughout Europe. So uh, she performed not only in Austria, but also uh, in Spain, in France, Germany, in Denmark. So that was really like at the age of 70, like some kind of a, yeah, real coming to the in, into the spotlight suddenly. And she enjoyed that a lot. Also, uh, after... Um, after being in, in, in the shadow in the background for such a long time and uh, then uh, after, after in the 19th, when, when she uh, dealt with her uh, trauma, childhood trauma and her past uh, in the 90s already, she was actually like in the beginning of the new millennium, she was ready for that also, I would say, to be in the spotlight. And uh, Austria seems to have really embraced her. Yes, yes, um, you can say that, yes. Um, thanks to uh, certain people who were very important for her, like uh, Christian Ide Hinze from the School of Poetry and uh, Christa Stippinger from uh, the Edition Exil, the publishing company, and also Elias Schneider in Tirol, who published uh, two books of hers and uh, invited her to uh, this uh, poetry festival he organizes annually. So it needed certain people to get uh, mm. media attention and yeah. also uh, finally official attention because in 2006 she received the medal of honor from the city of Vienna. Do you know what her reaction was to that? Her first reaction was, uh, well, they are giving me this medal and I'm wondering uh, if, because the mayor himself was giving her the medal and she was wondering if he even read any of her poems. <laughs> you worked with Ruth uh, for years uh and worked on the, the subject of her life and her work for years. yeah from yeah i would say 2012 to 2019 and we stayed in touch uh like on the phone also frequently and almost like yeah two weeks before her death what what stands out to you like what do you feel was uh, was one of the most rewarding moments in your experiences with her this is a hard question because there were so many moments <laughs> yeah That's good to hear. most of the time it was uh when when it was not about my work and we just did some mm. like private stuff like going for a dinner somewhere in a restaurant close to where she lived or visiting the albion river which was close to her uh, house making day trips yeah things like that actually i would say and Spontaneous stuff. She was a very spontaneous person and that was what she enjoyed most. Like, let's just forget about work today and we watch a movie or something like that. <laughs> when you think about your work, what do you think would be lost if you didn't look at Ruth's voice and or the beats without this transatlantic perspective? Mm, I think I think uh, um, what what would be lost is is a lot of uh, understanding not only Austrian literature but also beat literature at some point or at, at to to some degree. Can you say more about that? Yeah, because what what, what I found very surprising was that uh, nobody did this actually before, and so when we come go go back to to your first question and uh, to how I got to this uh, subject. Through, via this um, Austrian playwright Wolfgang Bauer to discover that he was heavily influenced by uh, Jack Herrick and other beats in the 60s, which made his works, which were 
for a lot of critics and scholars, very difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. And it made it suddenly so much easier to understand what he was actually doing. And the fascinating thing is that you also have this uh, in the other direction. For example, I published a book last year about William S. Burroughs' time in Vienna in 1936-37 when he was in the city for 10 months to uh, study medicine. And also in this case, although uh, Boris is uh, much more uh, uh, known than Wolfgang Bauer, done research about what what was if if this had any influence on 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 Boris's works mm-hmm. and also um, literature he was reading. Wilhelm Reich, for example, the Austrian psychotherapist analyst who went also to the United States in 1939 or Kafka for example what what that did to his works and there's a quite a lot I found out which is yeah why I published a whole book about that and so I think if you're interested in that kind of uh, literature in beat literature or also in Austrian contemporary experimental literature after like from the 60s onwards I think you can gain a lot of information from the research that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you are you going to continue working um in this kind of with the beat uh, generation research? Uh yeah at, at least until uh 2025 because I just started a new uh, research project at the University of Vienna which is was granted for four years which is about the same subject the transnational connections between Austria and the beats and Wonderful. yeah and currently I'm I'm finally finishing uh, my biography about Ruth which I hope will uh, be published at some point next year. So on top of the collection that's coming out uh, in August, yeah. is that correct? Mm-hmm. You will also have a biography. Yes, yes. So the the biography was actually the, the original uh, idea. And after that came all the other mm-hmm. things that got finished first. Mm-hmm. So the film is coming out now uh, this week and has its premiere at the film festival. And in August, um, the the edited collection is coming out that I'm uh, editing together with a Spanish-Americanist called um, Estibaliz Encarnacion Pinedo, who dedicated parts of her uh, dissertation about uh, Ruth's visual arts. I, I have one more question for you. Why the beats? Why the beats? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, because this is also something that... that Especially in Austria, it doesn't have a lot of attention. Mm. It's very different to the United States. Um, and so beat, beat poet, names of beat poets sometimes are popping up somewhere in like obscure places. And uh, of course, people know Naked Lunch and On the Road, but like this is more uh, also something they don't really integrate in their... In their um, how do you say, um, in, in something, yeah. Uh, and, and because I think it's, it's, uh, the, the, the subjects and, and also the, the habitus, the lifestyle of, uh, these, uh, these uh, poets and artists is something that is, uh, should be paid 
attention to more because uh, we we are living. I, I have the impression we are living too much in a kind of a mainstream world, even in in the arts. So uh, mm. I think arts could be much more courageous, and this is actually what what beats have done a lot. Not I'm I'm not talking about like the the major figures who uh, were very quickly also part of the mainstream but all uh, especially um underground poets who are not very well known yeah this is what what i find mm. fascinating and uh i wish there would be more attention uh, on that so that's why i'm doing this mm. drawing the attention to them there does seem to be something that's perhaps lost a little bit in the arts when you consider the someone like Ruth. Absolutely, yes, yes. Thomas, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you and learn about Ruth Weiss. I'm really looking forward to seeing your film, One More Step West is the Sea, and reading your co-edited collection, Ruth Weiss, Beat Poetry, Jazz and Art. And next year, I'll be looking forward to your biography of Ruth Weiss. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Thomas. This podcast was produced by Thomas Antonich, Elizabeth Leitzel, and myself. Our theme music is Hungarian Dance by Underscore Orchestra. I'm Adriana Lacona. Thanks so much for listening. The Botsteber Austrian American Podcast is produced by the Botsteber Institute for Austrian American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botsteberbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.